Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today is Constitution Day, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution back in 1787. To celebrate that anniversary, we're sharing a conversation about the constitutional clashes that shaped our nation between Alexander Hamilton and rivals like Burr, Madison, Jefferson, and Adams. Historians Carol Birkin, Jay Koss, and Tony Williams visited the NCC to sit down with President Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Wonderful to see you. I told you the introduction would be enthusiastic, and it is. And we are going to jump right in. Jay, you did a great podcast with Nancy Eisenberg on this topic, and we did what we're going to try to do in this panel, which is first articulate what Hamilton's constitutional vision was, and then contrast it with his rivals, Jefferson, Madison, and Adams, and then we'll see how far we get. So why don't you lead us off by summing up what Hamilton's constitutional vision was and why progressives, as you say in a recent piece, have had an ambivalent relationship with it. Yeah, um, well, I, I think that if I had to use a word to describe Hamilton's constitutional vision or his agenda from the Constitution, it would probably be invigoration. That Hamilton saw, like so many of the founders did, uh, so many of the, of the men who gathered at Philadelphia, um, recognize a need for some sort of stronger national union. But Hamilton was unique relative to many of them, not all of them, but many of them, in that he saw the potential for a national union facilitating economic commerce and growth and even industrial development and that ultimately lending itself to greater national security because of the United States, of course, at that time was not separated from the European powers. I mean, you had Great Britain to the west, you had Spain still in Florida, um, you know, you had um, the French in the west as well. So the, the European powers are still very much eyeing the United States of America. So uh, a stronger national economy would be one that would generate the, the resources necessary for self-defense. And also, um, economic transactions, Hamilton appreciated that uh, commerce between disparate parts of the nation could create um, a, a sense of unity among otherwise disparate, you know, mm -hmm. former colonists. That, you know, Georgians and New Hampshireites might not know each other, but if they were both engaged in commerce with each other, that it would help bind them together. And so Hamilton's vision of the United States was, I think, more than, for instance, James Madison um, or John Adams was really rooted in the transformative power of uh, economics and capitalism. Great. Uh, very helpful. Carol, you've heard what Jay said. You've talked about Hamilton's nationalism, which he shared with Washington, but you've also argued that Hamilton may not have been all that interested in the details of constitutional structure. Tell us I, about that. I think they talked about an energetic government, which I think is what you're, you're describing, that he really wanted to see a government that did something instead of the Articles of Confederation that, in fact, on the eve of the convention, the year before they couldn't get a quorum in the Confederation Congress, nobody even bothered to go anymore. 
So I think his, his, his idea of an energetic government, other people shared, certainly Washington shared that idea, partly from his experience of trying to get money for his army from, from organizations that did not have the power to tax. But I think that, and I think you're right, that he saw commerce as a binding force for the nation. Above anything else, he really strikes me as a nation builder. That's his, of all the men at the Constitutional Convention, most of them were there to solve immediate crises. Hamilton's a real visionary. Hamilton's look, in fact, in 1782, before we had even won the war, he's mapping out what the government would need to look like and what the people of America would need to do in order to have a seat at the table with European powers. And very soon after Washington is inaugurated, Hamilton is talking to an ambassador from Great Britain and basically says, we're not important now, but you just hold on. We're going to be as good as you really soon. And that's Hamilton's uh, overriding goal. And the reason I shocked my colleagues by saying, I don't think he cared as much about the actual frame of the government. Madison was obsessed with the frame of the government. Uh, Hamilton thought of that frame as a kind of scaffolding. He thought, this is sort of the shape, but there's no meat around the bones yet. And the meat around the bones were going to be policy and programs. And Hamilton wanted to be the person who set the policy and set the programs in the areas that he thought were really important. And I think at the convention, when he realized that his largest goal, which was the power to tax and the power to regulate commerce, were going to be a reality of that government, that he was raring to go. He was, uh, he, he, that was what mattered the most to him. I'm not trying to describe him as anti-intellectual, far from that, but he, he had his eye on what he wanted. And those were the two elements that he needed in order to make America great. <laughs> <laughs> Not even again. <laughs> On a nonpartisan basis. Um, <laughs> Tony, you, you're, both of your colleagues have said he wasn't that interested in the details of constitutional structure, and yet he made certain proposals at the convention that earned him the accusation of being a secret monarchist. He favored a president elected for life. He wanted a really insulated Senate. Uh, and then, of course, he was a co-author of the Federalist Papers, the leading defense of the Constitution. So what can you tell us about the details of his constitutional proposals that made people think that he was a monarchist? All right, so Hamilton, uh, by the way, I'm not going to wrap my answers. I just want to. <laughs> you can. But, OK. <laughs> Please do. This is the room where it happened. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but. Um, you know, Hamilton goes to the convention, and I think it's very important to note that he's outvoted. So he goes with uh, two other delegates from New York, and they were purposefully chosen by Clinton and his allies in the New York legislature to uh, foil Hamilton's designs. Uh, and so he faces off against two anti-federalists, uh, Yates and Lansing, uh, and he's effectively outvoted. And I think Hamilton becomes extremely frustrated 
by that. And so I think he, he's chomping at the bit to get involved and to, to, to be more involved than, than what, what we were saying, but he's frustrated and he can't do it. But he has this proposal on June 18th. The Virginia plan has been proposed. The New Jersey plan has also just a few days before that been proposed. Uh, the Constitutional Convention, the delegates are at a loggerheads. Uh, they're, they're stuck. Uh, they can't get past this debate. And Hamilton gives a six-hour speech, which just leaves the delegates just the, the, the speechless, uh, literally speechless. <laughs> no pun intended, but uh, literally they just all file out, and, and they're just somewhat shocked by his proposal of a president for life, of a Senate for life. Now, he did have a more democratic house, and a lot of historians, which is something that I argue and, and I agree with, um, believe that Hamilton was trying to moderate the Virginia plan in the eyes of the delegates to make it more palatable uh, and uh, swing them away from the New Jersey plan. Uh, we don't really have much evidence for that, uh, but because Hamilton is just so strategically brilliant, uh, it's, it's very possible, uh, and I think probable, uh, that he did that. Uh, but then, as, as Carol says, he effectively goes home. Now, other delegates left for periods of time and so forth, but eventually his fellow two delegates left, and he, New York didn't have a quorum, and so he didn't have a vote. And he's frustrated, comes back a few times, but doesn't have the influence over the actual, at the Constitutional Convention, uh, that Madison and right. others had. But he's very instrumental, of course, in ratification, uh, both as the author of uh, a majority of the Federalist Papers and uh, his sort of Herculean effort at the New York Ratifying Convention, where he was, uh, there were 48 anti-Federalists, only 16 Federalists. And yet, uh, eventually, he, along with John Jay and some others, but I, I credit Hamilton with really winning ratification in New York uh, by, by three votes. Uh, so it, it's a pretty incredible effort after the delegates leave Philadelphia to get this thing ratified. Uh, he didn't have much influence maybe over its creation, but he and Madison were just wrecking crews, I mean, uh, and, and just got that thing ratified. Can I add yeah. something? Sure. People, anti-Hamilton people in most cases will say, well, he was a monarchist and he won. But if you look at many of the men at that convention, his views were not so um, outside the norm as we might think. Madison, after all, one of the reasons he wanted the convention so bad is he said, I'm looking at the Virginia legislature and they're venal and they're corrupt and there's a lot. Uh, th this is not what a republic should be like. We have to have a more elevated discussion. We have to have men who are more elevated who will, will be able to guide the, the republic. And Adams, when he and Jefferson have a, Adams is in England and Jefferson's in France, and when they get a copy of the Constitution, Jefferson expresses his horror that the president uh, should, he wanted the presidency to rotate every year until, of course, he became president. Then it was <laughs> really okay, eight years was fine. And he wanted more frequent elections. And Adams writes back and he says, are you, I'm paraphrasing, are you crazy? 
the more often you have elections, the more likely it is that something terrible is going to happen. We should have fewer elections. We shouldn't have more elections. And so if you put Hamilton's argument for a president for life on a continuum, it's not as if everybody else was marching this way and Hamilton was marching marching that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It, it, it's, it's a Republican speech. And so not only do I think it's strategic, this June 18th speech, but I think he meant every word of it. I think he sincerely believed in it. And, and it was Republican. And if you look at his political philosophy, I would argue that you know Hamilton supports Republican government very early on and Farmer refuted. He, he fights for that government. He believes sincerely in Republican principles. Mm -hmm. And uh, very much so during the 1790s. I mean, he's trying to promote economic prosperity uh, for all Americans, not, not just the wealthy, uh, and uh, promotes a, a constitutional rule of law, a strong national security, yeah. uh, promotes a strong union, as Jay said, uh, for all Americans. I mean, he, he dedicates his entire life to public service exactly. for the republic. Uh, he's, he's, whatever Jefferson's uh, accusations are, he, he's not a monarchist. Great. Uh, so we have this vision of Hamilton as a devotee of republican principles. And Jay, I now want you to contrast Hamilton's republicanism with that of his most influential rival, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson more devoted to direct democracy than indirect representation of republicanism, Jefferson championing states' rights, Hamilton national power, uh, Jefferson uh, liberty, Hamilton uh, economic prosperity. We say in the exhibit that all of American history can be described as a battle between Hamiltonian nationalism and Jeffersonian localism. That's speaking in very broad terms. Give us a nuanced sense of the clash between the philosophies of Jefferson and Hamilton. Well, <clears throat> Democracy, the, when the United States overthrew Great Britain, uh, you know, by declaration in 1776 and finally in effect at the Battle of Yorktown, um, what the country had done was set upon a democratic experiment the likes of which outside of a handful of city-states in northern Italy the world hadn't seen in millennia. And it, was, it didn't go well. It was not a good experience. Um, on the one hand, you have the Articles of Confederation, um, which were purposefully stripped of, of real power um, by states' rights delegates. Then you also have the state governments, which are, by the standards of the age, would have been pristinely democratic. Uh, and in places like New Jersey and Pennsylvania, you, in some states like Connecticut, not as much, but you have real, a real kind of participatory democracy uh, happening. Now, by the standards of the contemporary age, I mean, it's important to recognize that we're talking about, you know, we're no, this is not even universal male, white right. male suffrage. But looked at from, uh, if, if you compare 1787 to today, it doesn't look very democratic, but if you compare 1787 to the last thousand or so years, it's, it's impressively so. And it did not go well. Uh, and there was a sense that, uh, you know, when, when the founders and sort of men of uh, education and reason and property would look at the situation, they would think back uh, in many respects to the ancients and the ancients and their almost tragic view of history 
that the ancients didn't see life as we see it, like almost a kind of Star Trek kind of, we're always going forward and getting better and doing more and more. They saw this sort of perpetual cycle of rise, threshold, and then decline, so that democracy, a rule by the people, is an inherently weak institution and that it collapses into mob rule. Uh, and this is a theoretical idea that gets, you know, the ancients sort of spell it out. It gets pulled forward in Machiavelli and ported through James Harrington into the American context. And it was more than just a bunch of dusty old books. It was really looked like it was happening. Like if you look at, for instance, the behavior of the state of Rhode Island and their creditor-debtor laws, or if you look at New York State and the Clinton machine uh, slapping an impost on, um, you know, imports in coming into the port of New York uh, that New Jersey and Connecticut had to pay with. I mean, it really looked as though democracy was in the process of failing. And so the, the challenge that the framers had, and this is a challenge that they all confronted, and they all had their own solutions, right? But it, it, to paraphrase Madison in a speech that he made on June 6th, Right, that because America had already crossed the Rubicon in throwing over, overthrowing George III, right? The classical solution to the problem of excess of democracy was to have some sort of hereditary estate, right? So this is why Montesquieu, for instance, celebrates the British system because it takes a popularly elected House of, Com House of Commons, balances it with the monarch and the House of Lords, and so all the different social factions are checked against one another. America had already thrown out that solution, and then, so as Madison aptly put it, what we need is a solution that solves the inconveniences of democracy while remaining true, to, remaining consistent with the democratic form of government. And Hamilton's solution, which he offers on June 18th, is really to sort of reduce the role of popular opinion in the affairs of state by insulating the president and the Senate, but still anchoring them in popular control because ultimately there were no hereditary estates in the Hamiltonian schema, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you'd have the president separated by two electoral colleges and the Senate separated by one. So in the end, they're still anchored on public opinion, but the idea is that this would allow the natural aristocracy to sort of rise through the ranks of political, the political hierarchy and to be able to make judgments about policy and foreign affairs that are consistent with the true interests of the country in juxtaposed to the, uh, the small-mindedness that you see in state legislatures. Now Jefferson, I would say, has a, a different view where he has more faith in the capacity of average people to govern themselves under certain circumstances. And then I think that you could classify Jefferson's vision of government as being a series of concentric circles going outward. So on the local level, Jefferson sees, and he wasn't a libertarian, so on the local level, he would see control over things like education and even morals and things like that. The state level, you would have control over roads and things of that nature, and, for, and the national level being primarily concerned with issues of foreign affairs. But it reflects sort of Jefferson's a greater faith in the capacity of individuals under certain circumstances to govern themselves relative, uh, relative to Hamilton's. So that I, I would say that that's probably a main difference. 
The commonality that really links all of these men together that we're going to discuss is, as I said, and as Madison said, is how do we solve the inconveniences of democracy while remaining consistent with the democratic form of government? Absolutely fascinating. Carol, how much of a direct Democrat was Jefferson? Uh, did he support uh, uh, the direct expression of popular will and contrast his vision with that of Hamilton? I am uh, a Hamiltonian as opposed to a Jeffersonian, so I have to try to be extremely fair. <laughs> I, I thank you, applause from. I, I, I think that Jefferson had an idealized vocabulary about the people, whoever he imagined they were, that, that he had, uh, when the French Revolution turned to guillotining everyone right and left, uh, Jefferson still believed, you know, that the French Revolution ought to be supported, that really this was temporary, that it was important. I, I always think of you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Thousands of people that that he had a, he was able to immediately pastel paint over a lot of things that a, a realist might like Gouverneur Morris or Hamilton who might say you know those people aren't following in our revolutionary tradition those people are evil people I think Jefferson often talked in a different form. What, I, what strikes me in the 1790s about Jefferson, regardless of his sort of spoken ideology, is that he manipulated the common man. When he organized that Jeffersonian Republican Party, he targeted uh, German immigrants, Irish immigrants. He understood exactly to go after uh, uh, people who hated Great Britain, the Irish, uh, uh, the French immigrants who might have come over. There, there is a kind of cunning to the way in which he mobilized the people, the people that I think does not reflect a desire for expanded democracy so much as it reflects a desire for him to get elected. That is, he really thought the Federalists were, were uh, followers of Great Britain, which to some extent certainly was true. Hamilton said, these are the people who we can trade with best, and this will fill our coffers, and this will make us uh, more prosperous. Jefferson called them monocrats. He, he had fantasized conspiracies against the people. But what he's doing when he reaches out to these people is he's trying to build a political base. And so I'm a little hesitant to, to describe him in his actions as democratic so much as I am always to believe that the Jeffersonians understood the desire of the people to have a broader voice in government. And they knew how to play that. Tony Carroll introduces this crucial clash between ideals and uh, institutions and the problem of parties. In the exhibit, there's this phenomenal original letter where Jefferson says to his subordinates, 
go tear Hamilton to pieces, mm -hmm. basically go set the press on him yeah. and destroy him. And they use yeah. their party-funded press from their jobs in yeah. the Washington administration to attack each other, and the Federalist and Democratic Republicans go after each other. Henry Adams praised Jefferson for betraying his principles as president and having supported limited national power, broadening the scope of the United States with the Louisiana Purchase more than any other president. And Hamilton, too, flipped uh, on some cases. So can you say more about the degree to which Hamilton and Jefferson, as party politicians, betrayed their own purported nationalism versus uh, states' rights localism? Well, certainly in the 1790s, the, this conflict arises uh, to some degree over the report on public credit uh, and uh, certainly over the bank. The, the two have extremely different constitutional interpretations of whether a bank uh, is, is constitutional. I, I believe, that, uh, of course, I'm on my second book on Hamilton now, so I'm going to take Hamilton's side. Uh, but, you know, he, he hasn't, you know, Hamilton, though, he looks at the necessary and proper clause uh, in, in Article 1, Section 8, and he says, look, you know, the bank is related to these foregoing powers, and, uh, you know, it seems to be, it's an expansive reading, but it, it's a legitimate reading of this Constitution. And, and don't forget, he was at the Constitutional Convention, and Jefferson's in Paris drinking French wines and having crazy philosophical explorations about, you know, uh, and uh, about various uh, topics about, you know, property rights only lasting 19 years. And, and noticing Sally Hemings. Well, well there is that. <laughs> uh, and, and supporting the, this violent revolution. Uh, and so the, Jefferson has an extremely restrictive view of this clause. And he says, is it absolutely necessary? Is it absolutely proper? almost to the extent that nothing, the, the, this federal government, which is supposed to be empowered to accomplish certain objects, as, as Hamilton says, it needs the, the means to achieve its ends. Jefferson doesn't believe that. He, he, he takes an extremely literal reading of it uh, and, and opposes the bank. Uh, and, but, but Hamilton wins that, that contest pretty easily. And after that, Jefferson and, and Hamilton are, are just at loggerheads. They, they, they just, the, the clashes there and, and the accusations of monarchism, you know, uh, throughout the, the bank war, uh, through, with the dispute over the, um, the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, foreign policy, uh, whether we should support the French or the British, uh, you know, Hamilton, believes in expansive vision, uh, an expansive national security state supporting the British, but uh, promoting the economic development of America. And, 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 and Jefferson is going to oppose him every step of the way from within the administration, right? And, and even supporting an anti-administration newspaper within the State Department. Uh, so it's very duplicitous. And yet, these two great rivals respect each other enough so that, and again in the exhibition, there's a bust of Jefferson, and uh, sorry, a bust of Hamilton, and Jefferson had it at Monticello. He respected his rivals so much that he inspired himself by looking at the bust uh, until the day he died. Jay, we've got two more founders to move through. You can say more about Jefferson. <laughs> we've got to get through Madison, and we can't leave poor Adams out as we Not did on the podcast. Right. Plus, there are these great audience questions. So I want you to set up the contrast between Hamilton and Madison, 
maybe by talking about their conflict over the bank. Yeah. Hamilton insisted that it was justified by what he called the sweeping clause. That's the necessary and proper clause that Tony just mentioned. Uh, uh, Madison, who'd initially opposed it, came to believe that the acquisition of the president and Congress and its constitutionality justified it, and yet the two men divided. So what were the main clashes between Hamilton and Madison? Right. Um, well, I, <clears throat> I would say, first of all, that the, the fight over the Bank of the United States reflected the ambiguous nature of the Constitution as a piece of law. That if you were to take a common law interpretation of the Constitution, you would probably conclude, as Hamilton did, that the, that the bank follows from uh, as, a, as a proper articulation of the various enumerated powers. However, if you, on the other hand, were to take the Constitution as a statement of Republican sentiment throughout the country, would probably, you probably would need to know that several states that had ratified the Constitution, including Massachusetts, which was really the first test that the Constitution faced. The first five states, uh, you, four of the first five were all small states that benefited from uh, a stronger national union. Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Federalists more or less just crammed it down the throat of the Anti-Federalists. Massachusetts was the first state where there was a genuine struggle over the Constitution. And the solution that they came up with was the idea of ratification under the good faith expectation for amendments. Now, and this is how, of course, we get what became known as the Bill of Rights. But importantly, several states, among them Massachusetts, have a recommended amendment uh, prohibiting Congress from chartering corporations and granting them exclusive rights. So the question then becomes, from a Republican standpoint, well, if states like Massachusetts, and importantly Virginia, where the margin was only 10 votes, if Patrick Henry could look into the future and see that a Bank of the United States was going to be chartered and communicate that to the delegates at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, would he have been able to swing five votes from Madison's side to his own side? So there's a, there's a theoretical tension there that's also amplified by the fact that uh, constitutional hermeneutics, the interpretation of the Constitution has almost always been, uh, when it's done by politicians, disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And I would, as an example of that, I would, I would point to Madison in particular. Madison was the one who sort of made the point of saying, you know, even late in life, he said, Colonel Hamilton wanted to interpret the Constitution as he saw fit, but I wanted to interpret it the way the convention and more important, the ratifications saw it. Okay, fine. But Madison was also the editor of the Bill of Rights and he strategically narrowed the scope of actual amendments right. consistent with his own point of view. Jefferson also was um, disingenuous or strategic or whatever you want to call it about constitutional authority because of course the Louisiana pur Purchase. And John Quincy Adams later commented, and I think he has a point that it was a power grab that, that was greater in scope and implication than anything done under the first 12 years of the, of the, the, the Republic. And I think that the framework to look at the bank battle is, I mean, the constitutional arguments are interesting, but 
the bank issue has to be examined in the context of the assumption battle from the previous summer. And this growing sense among the partisans of what would become the Republican Party of Jefferson and Madison, that something profoundly unfair was unfolding before their eyes in the government in New York. And that is to say that well-connected speculators, particularly in the eastern seaboards, in eastern cities of Boston, especially New York and Philadelphia, had caught wind of Hamilton's program before it was actually announced. Now, what Hamilton was not actively tipping people off. As a matter of fact, Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee had asked him in December of 1789, hey, got any tips? And Hamilton told him to go pound sand in so many words. But Hamilton had a bad habit of choosing lousy characters to surround himself with. So in particular, he hires William Dewar to be the first assistant secretary of the treasury while Dewar is simultaneously trying to set up an international banking syndicate. And the point is, is that word gets out. And why does this matter? It matters because uh, state and federal debt certificates during the 1790s were trading for pennies on the dollar because people did not expect the governments the federal government or the state governments to ever actually pay these back. So if you were somebody who happened to have money in the 1780s, in say December of 1789 or November of 1789, and you get word that Hamilton is going to offer a full repayment of the national debt, you can go off to people who are not in the know and buy the debt on pennies on the dollar. And this is in fact what happened. And moreover, what you can do is you can start going to, say, the Dutch, which is exactly what Gouverneur Morris does. Gouverneur Morris heads off to France, and then he goes to the Dutch and tells the creditors in the Netherlands, hey, you might want to buy domestic debt certificates because, from me because I have it on good authority that the debt is going to be paid back in full. And then after that is passed, Hamilton's bank proposal offers uh, you can for 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 just $25 in hard cash you could get a bank script the rest of it was payable in government debt certificates so in a very short period of time from between 1787 to 1791 debt certificates are being repaid at really just pennies on the dollar and then they turn around and you can use them to purchase what is in effect a guaranteed money maker and in the, the, the chartering and the operation of the Bank of the United States leads to the first genuine Wall Street panic because the price of the banknotes just goes crazy and there's a big bubble and it bursts. Jefferson and Madison, Madison in particular was very aware of this and he was also very aware of how this was detrimental to people who were not in and around the seat of government, which is why at the end of the day the assumption plan included situating the capital on the Potomac River. They're very sensitive to the fact that news traveled slowly and that Congress had actually suspended debate on the assumption plan when it was announced so members of Congress could send people down to the hinterlands of the Carolinas and buy up bank script. And this is also why they were suspicious that Hamilton was trying to formulate a monarchy because this is the sort of thing that the British monarch did after the Glorious Revolution. He couldn't actually, he could use what was called the civil list to basically buy off members of, members of parliament. They believed that Hamilton was employing a similar system with his economic package. And I think that really speaks to, if we put aside the hyperbole of the age, 
there is at the heart of the battle between Jefferson and Madison on the one hand and Hamilton on the other hand, this tension between we need to build a prosperous, strong, secure nation, which was Hamilton's main goal, and Jefferson and Madison's anxiety that there was something profoundly unfair going on, that this was, to borrow a phrase, trickle-down economics, that the rich were getting richer, and that the rich happened to be friends and, you know, in Madison and Hamilton's view, uh, Madison and Jefferson's view, cronies of Alexander Hamilton and, and Rufus King and Governor Morris and so on, and, and William, William Dewar especially. But it was a certain kind of rich. I mean, if you take away a lot of the overview, what's going on is that Hamilton's program is setting the trajectory of the nation, economic trajectory or political economy of the nation toward commerce, trade, which is largely located in the Northeast. Jefferson and Madison are from where? From Virginia. And when Hamilton's plan comes out, Madison, who had been his partner, his comrade in arms, through all the plans to get the Constitutional Convention called, through the convention, with the Bill of Rights, all of a sudden, Madison is Hamilton's enemy. And it has a lot to do there were rich people in Virginia. There were rich people in South Carolina. But their wealth was based on agriculture. And I think he sees very clearly, Madison sees very clearly, that the, the, the direction of Hamilton's program is toward everything that favors uh, urban, the urban north or the cities of the north, the people of the north, who are engaged in commerce and trade, commerce and trade, and that this is something that threatens the position. Virginia was the richest and most prosperous and most populous uh, state in the beginning. And the vision that they will become less significant, uh, the old dominion will not be the leading uh, light of the, of the 13 states, is really extremely painful to Jefferson and Madison. When, when Adams goes to negotiate the peace treaty, the one thing that he is stubbornly wedded to is fishing rights off Newfoundland. Why? Because the fishing industry, this is not for you know fly fishing for fun, because the <laughs> fishing industry was a big industry. And it, it was supported by the lumbering industry and by the shipbuilding industry, that this was at the heart of it. And this kind of activity was not what uh, Virginia planters were engaged in. They were engaged in buying up land in the West and selling it to small farmers who wanted to buy it, which is one reason why the, uh, the Louisiana Purchase was such a lovely idea. And so I think we have to think of regional uh, self-interest in, in both cases uh, as much as we can think about political theory. T Tony, we must put Adams on the table before we get to the great okay. audience mm -hmm. questions. And in the exhibit, so there is a 
powerful split between Adams and Hamilton, both great Federalists, but uh, Hamilton starts attacking Adams in a fit of pique, and Adams writes an unpublished defense, which he wants to publish after Hamilton's death, methodically making the case for his own administration against Hamilton's uh, importunation. So why did Hamilton break with Adams, and what was the clash over the Constitution? Well, the interesting thing, and, and even strange thing is that uh, th there's this huge debate among Federalists, uh, and Adams and, and Hamilton largely agree on policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, particularly during Adams' presidency, and he is supporting peace through strength uh, and negotiations during this crisis, this quasi-war with, with France, uh, in which France was seizing our ships uh, and violating our neutral rights. Hamilton agrees with them on, on, on the policy. He also wants peace through strength, but they had engaged in, in the politics of personal destruction and it became very personal. And, and Adams almost obsessively believed that Hamilton kept trying to keep him out of the office and, and kept manipulating the elections uh, and engineering other Federalists to win, uh, both in, in 1796 and in 1800. That, and, and, and then Hamilton uh, sends this letter, uh, this not very, uh, complimentary letter about Adams, which then gets published. Uh, and so Adams goes ballistic and becomes even more angry uh, with Hamilton. And so there's this personal rage that, that matched, I think, the, the antipathy that Jefferson and Hamilton had in the early 1790s. And yet the funny thing is they're in the same party and they agree. So it, Maybe it's not unlike you know today's Tea Partiers and, and John Boehner trying to reign in Congress and so forth, and and Rand Paul uh, uh, fighting against him and so forth. So uh, there was a lot of tension within the party, and of course, within only a few years, it'll collapse. So that's a powerful statement of the fact that much of it was personal. But Jay, your book, your forthcoming book, is the Price of Greatness: Hamilton, Madison, and the Creation of American Oligarchy. Right. Both. Madison and Jefferson were centrally concerned with oligarchy ruled by the moneyed few. Both support, uh, Jefferson supported that constitutional amendment you mentioned that would have forbidden Congress from setting up corporations with exclusive privileges. Madison is looking forward to 1930 and worrying that income inequality is going to be too great to sustain yep. uh, Republican principles. Was Hamilton more of a supporter of oligarchy and that and 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 did that distinguish him from Adams who was also concerned about oligarchy and rule by the few yeah I think that um, they would have had um, slightly different views I think that Hamilton saw himself as sort of a Robert Walpole um, the sort of a British Prime Minister that I think that he felt that um, he could channel the interests of the moneyed elite toward the national welfare. Uh, that this was almost sort of, um, he could tame the tiger in, another, in other words. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, he had expressed affection for uh, the, one, one reason he had, his, his sort of affection for the British system of government is very reminiscent of the essays of, of David Hume, who was also a defender of the way the crown the British monarchy sort of manipulated Parliament, um, which is a very principled sort of. It gets 
twisted in the Jeffersonian uh, party rhetoric into, you know, Hamilton wants, Jefferson called it a, not just a monarchy, but a monarchy bottomed on corruption. But if you actually, you read David Hume and you see, oh, well, this is where Hamilton's coming from, that there's sort of a, a, a natural aristocracy that can sort of take the self-interested impulses of the moneyed elite um, and turn them toward the public good. Adams, I think, has a, first, I think it's important to recognize, too, that Adams and Hamilton, even though they're in the same party and they're both from the north, they come from very different backgrounds. Massachusetts is, you know, relatively, you know, town-based economy, small freeholding. Hamilton, um, is, he, he's not born into it, but he sort of marries into this sort of wealthy, commercial, landed, uh, you know, Dutch kind of, universe in New York with the Shilers and the Van Rensselaers and, you know, Governor Morris and intermarriage and things like that. So they have sort of different views. And I th Adams, and Ad Adams, unfortunately for him, um, was misunderstood as, as if he was, was here. He would certainly tell us that he had, has been profoundly misunderstood. Right. And then I think the better view of sort of Adams's role, in, view on the moneyed interest, is that Adams probably, if he had been at the convention, would have supported, um, you know, uh, um, ab um, apportionment in the upper house based on wealth, uh, but not because he thought that the wealthy were more virtuous, which is something that a view that Hamilton ought, could slip into, but that Adams was worried about the moneyed interests spreading their control throughout the entirety of the government, and that if they had it a branch of the government that was their own, they could be contained there. So Adams has a more classical sort of view of mixed estates, I think, um, that is similar in some respects to Hamilton's. But Hamilton's is also really intermingled with his own, his own view of himself um, and his own sort of ambitions. and sort of mixed up in this idea of, you know, a, a class of leaders taking whatever instrumentation of government exists and sort of making it work toward the public good. Um, and that, that that's really distinguishes Hamilton in a lot of respects. Great. Um, Carol, last word before we go to these great audience questions. So interesting to hear so many of the founders concerned about oligarchy ruled by the moneyed few, taking their, uh, move from Montesquieu, who contrasts uh, democracy ruled by the many, uh, aristocracy by the few, and uh, uh, monarchy by the single um, potentate, which can degenerate into the mob in the case of democracy, oligarchy in the case of aristocracy, and tyranny in the case of monarchy. So tell us more about Adams's concern about oligarchy, which he shared with Madison and Jefferson and how all of the framers were really concerned about ruled by money uh, elites. I, I, I always see Adams's hatred of Hamilton to have very little to do with policy. He hated Hamilton because he, he thought that the people in his party turned to Hamilton to lead them. Uh, Adams, who I really love, but who was such a terrible president. <laughs> Adams keeps men in his, his uh, uh, cabinet who are left over from, from uh, George Washington's 
cabinet instead of building around him a group of men who supported him. And most of them turned to Hamilton to ask, what should we do? What should we do? Uh, they, they pretty much ignore Adams. And Adams is so sensitive to his own, his own standing, to being uh, not appreciated, to being uh, it, er, early on in his life, uh, when he's friends with Jonathan Sewell, he's constantly saying, I'm basically, I'm just a lowly worm. No one will ever remember me. I'll never be famous, nothing. But they'll, and even during his role in the revolution and diplomacy, he was saying, they'll only remember Benjamin Franklin. They won't remember me. And it tears him apart that his cabinet views him as sort of, well, that's nice. Now let us go ask Alexander Hamilton what we ought to do. This is not Hamilton's fault, but Hamilton certainly enjoys that. And he wants Adams to do what, he th what Hamilton thinks is best. He wants to play the same role in many ways that he played with Washington, which is uh, 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 prime minister for the new president, and he gets very angry when he can't do that. Plus, he wanted to be the general of the army that, that uh, uh, Adams put together when they thought France was going to attack them. And Adams desperately tries to prevent this from happening. He does not want Hamilton to have another honor. He doesn't want <laughs> Hamilton to be the head. And it's only Washington's intervention. Washington is nominally head of this huge army that they put together. But he says, I want my second in command, who will really run the thing, to be Alexander Hamilton. And, and, and that's the final straw for Adams. This is a very personal, very personal conflict uh, from Adams's uh, point of view. And toward the very end of his administration, he sits down and he says, I'm going to be, I'm president. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm, I'm not going to let people push me around anymore. And it's a little too late. Hamil Hamilton really was, I, I think it's important to bear in mind, just on a personality level, that Hamilton really was a force of nature. Right? Yeah. That, that Jefferson writes Madison during the debate of the Jay Treaty. Hamilton ends up writing something like 30-odd essays in favor of the Jay Treaty, just this <laughs> endless torrent of words streaming forth. In about out. 12 minutes. It, yeah. I mean, he's a, it, it's amazing. And, and, and um, you know, the, and, and so Hamilton was a problem for, the, for these guys in a lot of respects. I mean, it's one thing when they're, you're on the same side with him, uh, during, you know, Madison and Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention or writing the Federalists. But when you get on opposite sides of the spectrum on a political divide, you know, Jefferson wrote to Madison and said, you know, he, he is the colossus of the federal party without numbers, right? They, ha they don't have numbers. Jefferson and Madison believed. They didn't have the numbers, but they had Hamilton. And Jefferson says he's a host unto himself. And at what Adams is political problems, and it gets to this sort of ambiguity in the early government where, you know, they switch the Constitution on and we don't really know how it's going to work. So who's the leader of this political coalition? Is it Adams by virtue of being the president and Washington's successor, or is it Hamilton by virtue of being Hamilton, right? That's sort of the way Hamilton, and it, it's, 
it's hard at times to appreciate that now because he's not alive anymore. But he was really bursting at the seams with passion and vigor and energy. He was full to bursting. He was called by women because he was very attractive. Women called him Little Adonis, but men called him Little Mars. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want that. Um, well, we've done our duty, friends, of contrasting Hamilton's constitutional vision with that of Amal uh, Adams, Madison, and Jefferson, and now the audience wants more of this uh, theme that you've introduced here, which is what sort of person was he? And our first questioner asks, tell us more about his temper, and also, why did he admit his affair? We have the originals of the letter in which he admitted the affair and also the, original, the originals of the letter in which the duel, the fatal duel was set up. And it's so cool in the exhibit downstairs, we've paced out the duel and you can stand at either side and see how close they were to each other when they stood. It's really remarkable to realize how intimate it was. But Tony, tell us more about his temper and why he admitted the affair. You know, I think that uh, Jay, Jay got him correct a, a few minutes ago. He, he's a man uh, of just energy that's just bursting forth. I mean, he's elected Secretary of the Treasury on, on a Friday. He's already in the office all weekend, uh, securing loans and so forth, and, and hitting the ground running on Monday. Uh, you know, when, when he is, is solicited by Congress or by Washington to write opinions or reports and so forth, why write 4,000 words when you can write 24,000 words? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just, he's just bursting with energy. And, and he's, you know, he's the smartest guy in, in the room, okay, contrary to what uh, Kennedy said of, about Jefferson dining alone. Uh, he's the smartest man in the room, but unfortunately, he lets everybody know it, right? Mm -hmm. there, there is a, there's a, because there's such genius there, there's also a, just a, a, a touch of, or maybe more than a touch of arrogance. Uh, there's not a lot of humility, but you know he—he's a young. He dies relatively young, right? Uh, I think I've outlived him now. That my birth, my 40th birthday was yesterday. I think I've outlived him. Uh, but he's—he's he's a young man on the make throughout you know, throughout all this public service. A young man on the make, and and he just wants to win immortal fame. Uh, he wants to be the guy in charge. He wants to be making policy, uh, and, and he largely does. He's very successful. But, yeah. Please do, but let me, I want to get some more questions on the floor, too, at the same uh, time. So I'm going to ask, if Hamilton had not been killed in the duel with Burr, how would history have been different, Carol? Well, by the time they had that duel, Hamilton's day had passed. Uh, Jefferson, the Republicans, Jeffersonian Republicans had basically taken over. And Hamilton, at one point, he says, uh, there's no place for me anymore in this country. It's very sad. I mean, he feels uh, as if his time is over uh, because of the triumph of the Jeffersonians. But I, I do want to say the reason he confessed to the, mm -hmm. the affair was he wanted to defend himself against claims that he had been involved yep. in inside Personally trading. Right. That was more important to Hamilton, that his <laughs> reputation mm -hmm. as a political leader was pristine, uh, whereas his reputation as a, a man, uh, a married man, was, could be sacrificed for that. That probably tells you a lot about Hamilton. 
And, and there's a reason why, right? He was constantly investigated by mm -hmm. Congress, right. by, by right. the Republicans in Congress right. in the 1790s right. uh, because of perceived improprieties uh, in office. And he, you want to talk about dotting every I and crossing every T. Mm -hmm. I mean, these, these reports he would do to defend himself right. were, were meticulous. And they never proved any Anything. public official wrongdoing. And, and, and the thing is that, you know, as I argue in my new book, on, on Hamilton, he, he's constantly, to, that's right. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. Not at all, I thought <laughs> I had all of your books to show. But constant, consistently sought to defend not only his personal honor, but his public honor as well, uh, which is why he uh, relates this just detail or into just this salacious, all the salacious and facts of the affair. And then he goes and, and, and buys his wife a new house. He reminds me, I always told my students, it's like Kobe Bryant bought that great big ring when he cheated on his wife. That's the Grange. That's the Grange. Jay, you can jump in, but this question is uh, very much uh, for you as well. Uh, would Hamilton be a anti-Trump Republican today, a Rockefeller Republican, or a Democrat? He'd probably be, him. He'd be he would be a Hamiltonian. Yeah. <laughs> is what well, he well then I'll ask the question you've asked, which is, would the are the Democrats today more? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, he was, the, you know, he, um, he was his own ideology. And certain strands of it get pulled forward in a time. Emphasis on commerce and finance get pulled forward. But other things, the emphasis on, you know, aristocratic control or minimizing democratic involvement, that doesn't. So, they, they, you know, and that's the case with all of them. Right. I think, and I, I would just add sort of to piggyback off the conversation too that uh, about Hamilton's personality um, is that he at times could display a shocking level of naivete. Yes. Um, Alexander Hamilton never made a dime off of his economic program. And this is what this is what Jefferson and William Branch Giles and Madison and Monroe, they were all convinced that Hamilton was lining his own pockets. Okay, he wasn't. But Hamilton had this group of people encircling him. William Dewar, Andrew Craigie, William McCone, Robert Morris, Governor Morris, Rufus King, who were all getting rich off of it. Hamilton himself never made a dime. Um, and this is sort of the way, the, in, in his June 18th speech, in a lot of respects, where he goes and basically calls for a monarchy without, you know, hereditary titles, it, I think in a lot of respects reflects a, a real naivete. Uh, other things, his confession of the Reynolds affair, shockingly naive. His public denunciation of John Adams in the, in the run-up to the presidential selection of 1800 and his harebrained scheme to split the vote so he could sneak Pinckney into the presidential office in 1800. I mean, Hamilton really um, oftentimes just played the fool. And so for as brilliant as he was, 
you know, it's, it's interesting to juxtapose him and Madison in that regard, that Madison did not have Hamilton's dashing countenance or his sort of historical flair and his daring do. But, you know, H Hamilton was just absolutely blindsided in the spring of 1790 when Madison decided to turn on him and really made his life miserable because that was a skill set that was within Madison's ambit. And Hamilton really had, couldn't see it coming. It's, Go ahead. it's also true that he was naive with women. This Mariah Reynolds, whose husband pimped her to Hamilton, <laughs> would write to him mm -hmm. for years. As I lie here in my bed with my hair flowing over my bosom, I think of you, Mr. Hamilton, please send $10. And he sent it. <laughs> I mean, I, he, he, when Peggy Arnold did her routine, oh, I didn't know my husband was going to do this. Oh, I'm so stupid. What will happen to me? Hamilton rushes to her bedside and says, don't worry, madam, we will protect you. And Washington's going, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, he was extremely naive. There were pockets of naivete in him that you know, in many ways really makes him a little more adorable, but, but he, he's, it runs through it him does. pretty... There's, there's a chance, there is circumstantial evidence to suggest that James Reynolds, who was Maria's husband, uh, he, he, was, he was a fraudster, he was a crook. Right. And there is real evidence to suggest that he was, James Reynolds was working with William Dewar, Dewar. who at the time was at the Treasury Board of the, of the federal government to basically defraud soldiers in Virginia, William Dewar, whom Hamilton made the first Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and who used it as an opportunity, like I said, to set up the first, tried unsuccessfully to set up an international banking syndicate, basically using his public powers. I mean, Hamilton, Hamilton just had a terrible time reading people. He got played mm -hmm. by Dewar, and he got, he got it really badly was played by William Dewar, and really badly played by Maria and James Reynolds, really yeah. shockingly. But, you know, one thing we are, you know, a lot of these examples are from the, the later 1790s, not all of them that, that the two of you mentioned, but what Steve Knott and I argue in our book on Washington and Hamilton is that, you know, he had such a close alliance for so many decades with, with Washington, and Washington was a, a good judge of character yes. and was moderate and more deliberate and so forth, less easily fooled. Uh, and once he loses Washington as an ally, when he finally retires from the presidency, I think a lot of these political, very public mistakes come to the fore. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. interesting. We have uh, time for one last question in this completely fascinating debate, and it's a great one for the National Constitution Center. Uh, in light of the uh, great polarization in America today, uh, are there lessons to be learned from the battles between Hamilton and Jefferson? Uh, did they anticipate our current polarized politics, or can they shed light on the possibility and effectiveness of compromise today? You know, I'd like to address that because it's something I've thought about a lot, you know. Um, I think that the, the wonderful thing, although they engaged in the, the politics of personal destruction and they were probably way more partisan and way better at insulting each other than we ever will be. And, and their, you know, their, their, their debates, their, their attacks on each other were extremely public and, and very biting and, and nasty. 
I'll say this, though, that the debates we've been talking about, the wonderful thing about it here at the National Constitution Center is to think about it's a debate that was very much influenced by the Constitution. It wasn't personal preference. It wasn't just what they thought might be good for the country and so forth. It was deeply rooted in their understanding of the Constitution. Now, they had different understandings of the Constitution, but it was an extremely constitutional argument. And that's what I love about the bank argument. It, it's constitutional. They, in other words, they took the Constitution seriously. And, and I think we, would, we all wish that, that our statesmen, our politicians would, would do a little bit more of that today. Beautiful. I yeah. must end with that gorgeous <laughs> note. Ladies and gentlemen, it is inspiring to see that this was a constitutional battle of ideas and all of us have a duty and obligation to educate ourselves about these competing constitutional visions that define the early debates and to be inspired by the fact that they were clashes of principle rather than purely of personality, all united by a common devotion to this great document of human freedom, the US Constitution. Go see the exhibit, and please join me in thanking our wonderful panelists. This episode was edited by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please visit the National Constitution Center's exhibit, Hamilton, The Constitutional Clashes That Shaped a Nation, closing at the end of this year. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show, and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Happy Constitution Day!